you brought a Bible, it would be a great time to get it. Um, since we've completed that, um, that series on the Paschal Discourse of Jesus Christ, those four chapters in the Gospel of John, you may recall, 13, 14, 15, 16, what I've got for you now is kind of a midsummer survey of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'm only going to do four sermons. Uh, my hope is that uh, this series will be over by the time you figure out how much of it I don't understand. So, only four. Four quick sermons about the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn there and let me read you just a couple of snatches out of um, chapters 1 and chapters 2. You follow in your copies as we kind of bounce around in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Let's start here. The first three verses. Hear that which is inspired and inerrant and infallible in the very mind of God as black words on a white page. The first three verses of chapter 1 read like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity. And grasping for the wind. Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And now the first 11 verses of chapter 2. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth. What, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had great possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, 
And indeed, all was vanity, grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this endures forever. Guys, this is not a very popular book, book of Ecclesiastes. Um, that's, because, that's not because it's so difficult. It is difficult. It's because it's so depressing. People prefer a much more upbeat message. You know, laugh and the whole world laughs with you. A la Joel Osteen, you know, get your best life now. Um, every day and in every way, the world is getting better and better and better. T.S. Eliot um, once said that we humans can't, we, we can't bear much reality of which this book is full. Try this one on for size. That is, this piece of reality. Try, try this on for size. Um, verse 2, vanity of vanities. All is Vanity. That's how the book opens. Um, Life is meaningless. And he says so emphatically. And then he asks in verse 3, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What what good is it? And and then he sighs in verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man cannot express it. And that's the sentiment that is woven through this entire book, all the way through it. In fact, he closes the book uh, in chapter 12 in verse 8, which is uh, only six verses uh, left. He says again, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. He starts like that. It's woven through the book, and he ends like that. Vanity. He uses the word 35 times in this book, the word vanity. For him, life had become an an irresponsible shrug of the shoulders. It's it's relentlessly drab, jejun. What on earth is a book like this doing in the Bible? Um... That's the question I'm going to try to answer over the course of four sermons. What's this doing in the Bible? I I, I see what you mean, Dr. Young, about why it's not so popular. That's that's downright depressing. Let's take a closer look. Guys, um, this is a book, this is a tale of searching, of experimenting, of, of, of grasping for meaning, for purpose. Look at verse 13. Um, and I set my heart to seek and search. Um, look at verse 17. And I set my heart to know wisdom. Look at verse, two, verse 1 of chapter 2. I said in my heart, do you see what's going on? Here's a man 
in the confines of his own heart and he's trying to sort things out. He's, he's trying to snatch a little bit of meaning in, 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 from his life. He's grasping, he's grappling, he's, he's searching, he's pondering. In the midst of all that searching, he decides, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to conduct a series of experiments um, in the hopes that in one of these areas of my experiments that I'm going to figure out what life, um, how to find meaning in life. And so what you have here in the early parts of the book of, of, of Ecclesiastes is a, is a report on these projects, these projects in which he's searching. He's trying to find, um, he's trying to find some kind of meaning um, that he can land on and build his life. And so here's project number one. He mentions it in verse 12. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> um, verse 13. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. Okay. My first project is going to be um, wisdom, um, education, um, uh, you know, the, the life of the mind, the intellectual path. Um, you know, guys, we have more information at our fingertips today uh, than, than ever before. And what has it produced? Um, how are our, um, how has our education um, made a difference? Well, um, it helped us get a better job. Yeah, it does. And it can inform us. Yes, it can. But it cannot purify. Oh, it'll, it'll help us get a job. Yes. But it has never succeeded in helping me sort out meaning in life. Um, we, we all know what our efforts at sex education produced. Guys, if, if, if education was the answer, then, then our college campuses ought to be nirvanas of delight. And yet, God reduces our greatest intellectual pursuits to... to um, To opinions, to um, sometimes vacuous opinions. Solomon found out that you're not going to find wisdom in the halls of intellectualism. And thus he says in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, the more you know, the deeper your pain. And so he says, okay, then I'll try, me an, I'll try another project. Um, I'll move on to project number two. And, and, and this time, um, in, in verses one through three of chapter um, uh, two, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find meaning via pleasure. 
Uh, you know, the erotic, the, the pleasure seeker, hedonism. And he says in verse uh, 3, throw in a little wine. Um, <clears throat> he says in verse 10, anything my eyes wanted, I, I, I got. I didn't deny myself anything. Pleasure, the erotic, um, playboy, epicureanism, eat, drink, and be merry, um, the life of the senses. You know, in, in our day, we would, we would put it something like this. It's, um, we're going to pursue the excitement of an affair, perhaps, or the endless supply of money. And, and this guy certainly is in a position to, to have anything he wants. Now, guys, isn't, isn't that the kind of life that you secretly hanker after? You know, it was interesting, one, um, one commentator pointed out that we have no record of Jesus ever laughing. And yet, Solomon says, I'm going to try to find meaning in laughter. And then he says in verse 2, it's madness. And then in verse 11, uh-oh, there's that vanity word again. Tell me, how many people do you know who have found lasting satisfaction in having a good time? Booze and sex and exotic vacations and amusements. And everywhere Solomon turned, zero. Finally, he gets so disillusioned with his pursuit. He says to a friend, I got to get out of this. Um, the, the sensual pleasure makes promises that it cannot and does not keep. And so he does a 180. Well, education didn't work. Um, pleasure didn't work. So now I think I'll try um, in my third project. I'm going to try work. He, he, he says that in verse 4. Um, I made my works great. You know, he becomes, he becomes a workaholic. Boy, doesn't that sound contemporary? Um, you know, you, you, um, you put together a series of short-term goals, and I pursue one goal after the next in the hopes that ultimately they'll all add up to some sense of meaning in my life. Then I want you to notice his commentary on that pursuit. He starts in verse 17. I didn't read this part, but he says, Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity. He, he says in 18, I hated my labor. Um, he uses words like, Great evil, sorrowful, burdensome. Oh, and, and there's that word vanity again. In fact, it gets so bad. In verse 23, it says, For all the days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the, even in the night, his heart takes no rest. That is, I can't even sleep. Work no longer 
his work ceases to be fun or meaningful. It becomes a burden and he hates his life and can't sleep. He spends his life working and what does he have to show for it? Look at verse 18 and 19. I toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. I work all my life. I gather up a big 401k. I stuff it full of all kinds of things. And then I die and I leave it to a fool. What good is that? Then he says, well, let me try one more. One more project that might that might work. You know, my, this, this life of the mind, it didn't work. No, the, the more I know, the, the deeper the pain. And then the, the idea of pleasure, oh my goodness, um, all, all of those promises made to me by pleasure, they, they were never kept. And then I tried, you know, just working hard. <clears throat> that didn't work either. In fact, it got so bad in my workaholism that I couldn't even sleep. So now, so now I'm going to try. He says in um, um, verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold. Oh, that'll do it. When all else fails, just get rich. <clears throat> you know, um, gather up a lot of money. Um, um, move from one small house to a bigger house and then to a bigger house into the house of your dreams. And then buy yourself some status symbols so that everybody can see them. And then perhaps become an art lover, a dilettante, so that you can hang out and Crowds where you're, where you're perceived to be with it. Try that one on. This guy is in a position to have anything he wants. He denied himself nothing. Edacious consumption. And guys... Um, that, that didn't work for him any, either. Um, he, says, um, he says in verse 17, therefore I hated life and all was grasping for the wind. This uh, pursuit of success and status symbols, uh, that didn't work either. Oh, my friends, um, according to Solomon, things aren't as bad as they seem. They're worse. You depressed yet? Good. Because that's the point. You see, gang, the, the problem is not income. The problem is idolatry. The, the problem is not work. 
The problem is idolatry. The, the problem is not pleasure. The problem is idolatry. The problem is not wisdom. The problem is idolatry. Something is missing. And you know what? I don't think I have to convince you of that. You already know it. What could it be? (laughs) Well, John Newton has a suggestion. You know who John Newton is? John Newton wrote that song that you love to sing. In fact, the world loves to sing it, Amazing Grace. That's not the only hymn he wrote. You did know that, don't you? He wrote another one called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken Zion. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken Zion. That one. Um, Let me sing you the last stanza of that hymn. Savior, if of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Listen. Fading is the world's best pleasure. All its boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Oh, we knew you'd say that, Dr. Young. You always say that. But very honestly, that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove anything. You know what? I agree with you. Just because John Newton wrote that as him, that 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 doesn't prove anything. Well, well, it does prove this. It proves that 3,000 years ago, the man who wrote this book of Ecclesiastes, who was considered the wisest man in all the earth, he believed this. And then 300 years ago, John Newton wrote it. He believed this. And then standing before you this morning is a loudmouth preacher who he believes this. So I would say that that puts you on the defensive. Because you've got to explain why you don't believe this. And you know what? I'm betting you already do believe. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but science children know. Oh, yeah, 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 Dr. Young. That's all what we hear that every Sunday. <clears throat> well, since I'm so predictable, let me leave you with four other things to gnaw on that hopefully aren't quite as predictable. Number one. If, if according to this, these opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, 
that there is nothing but vanity under the sun or under heaven, then our only hope must be above heaven. One commentarian said, to make any sense of the world, you've got to go outside of it. My friends, that treadmill that you're on, that's by design. The restlessness of life, that can be traced back to the will of God so that you might have the same despair that Solomon had. So that you'll keep on looking. And you'll keep on wondering. What is it that's missing in my life? And that you'll find it hopefully. Not under the sun because it can't be found there. You'll find it. Above it. Above the sun. You see guys. God is demolishing So that he can rebuild. God is removing all of those things that you thought were going to bring you meaning. So that you will come to the same conclusion Solomon came to. Steve Brown tells a story. About a man who owned a warehouse. Um, it was in Boston, and it was an old warehouse. It was dilapidated. It hadn't, it hadn't had an occupant in years, and all the windows were out, and the doors were hanging off, and it was rusty. And, and he, he gets a call from a, his real estate agent and saying, there's a, there's a man interested in buying your warehouse. And so the owner of the warehouse meets the prospective buyer at the warehouse with the realtor. And um, the owner is watching the prospective buyer, and he says, well, you know, um, I know it looks kind of bad, but you know, if I replace the windows and, and, and rehang some doors and, and paint it up, it's going to look good as new. And the prospective buyer said to the owner, oh, 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 don't worry about that. I'm not interested in the building. I'm only interested in the site. And so what God does is that he puts you in a treadmill so that he can clean away all of that stuff that you thought was going to bring you a sense of purpose. And then he begins to rebuild. Because ladies and gentlemen, your search for meaning under heaven is going to conclude at the same place Solomon. Number two, if a man who had everything and investigated everything visible and then described it as vanity, then the one thing that we must need is something that's invisible. 
peace and contentment and, and meaning. You're never going to have that unless you find that something else, that invisible something else. And since I'm so predictable, let me say it again. That invisible something else is a real, growing, vital relationship with a person whose name happens to be Jesus Christ. Third, my friends, when you remove Jesus Christ from the center of an intellectual pursuit, or a pursuit of pleasure, or a pursuit of meaning, whatever, you will find, you will end up in vanity. Um, I heard about this from a friend, and I looked it up, I googled it, and found it. It's, um, it's a speech, my speech to the graduates by Woody Allen. You know the name Woody Allen, don't you? Woody Allen is a he's a brilliant filmmaker. Um, but this is not an actual speech because he never made this speech. Um, it's a fictional parody on speeches to graduates. And he was watching or listening to these speeches that were being made to graduates and he was saying, that's a bunch of baloney. And so he wrote one himself. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but it's worth reading. Let me read you about the first four sentences. <clears throat> More than at any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. <laughs> One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other path leads to total extinction. Let us pray that we have wisdom to choose correctly. I speak, by the way, not with any sense of futility, but with a panicky conviction of the absolute meaninglessness of existence. <clears throat> what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is any pursuit that does not have Jesus Christ at the center of it is going to end up right here. You know, Jesus addresses this whole issue in, in uh, the New Testament. In, in Mark 8, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? But he loses his soul. <laughs> One final thing. John Steinbeck, do you know that name? Uh, Nobel Prize winner for literature years ago. Uh, he wrote several books, East of Eden, uh, the one that I read was Grapes of Wrath, and I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. It's just so depressing. Um, it goes from awful to worse, as it concludes. But uh, anyway, John Steinbeck said this. It's just a sentence. Let me read it to you. He said, there is a creeping, all-pervading gas of immorality which starts in the nursery and does not stop until it reaches the highest offices, both corporate and governmental. Did you get that? 
I love that this creeping, all pervading gas of immorality. <clears throat> it starts in the nursery, and it doesn't stop until it reaches the highest offices, both corporate and governmental. Gang, once sin entered, everything became vanity. All those pursuits that we thought were going to take us to the place of real purpose and meaning and happiness, they don't, they don't work because of that all-pervading gas that is creeping throughout our culture. Um, back last April, Susie and I were winging our way across the Atlantic and um, I was headed to Geneva, Switzerland to preach and then on to Serbia to teach. And, and um, the, we were sitting in our little um, torture chambers and um, the flight attendant was walking up and down the aisles and she was offering things to read. And, you know, I, think, I thought, well, you know, I got, I got eight and a half hours to kill. Um, what do you got there? And so she has, uh, you know, a, a newspaper in French and I don't speak French, and he's got a newspaper in, um, in German, and, you know, I don't speak German. But then she had one in, in English, and I thought, well, give me that one, give me that one. <clears throat> so it turned out to be something that I never knew existed. It's called the International New York Times. I knew there was a New York Times. I just didn't know there was an international version of New York Times. But apparently it's confined to airplanes. I, I don't know. Anyway, so I got a hold of that magazine and uh, began to read it. And I had plenty of time. Well, what, do you, what do you want me to read? I, you know, I'll just read anything you got there. So I opened it up and read an editorial, this one, this editorial uh, that was in the New York, International New York Times. And uh, it was written by a Frenchman. And um, the title of the article is Probing the French, excuse me, Probing the Heart of French Malays. And here's what the article was about. It was trying to explain why so many young French males were leaving France and, go, and heading to ISIS to fight for ISIS. This phenomenon that existed in France, why are we losing so many of our youth who are just dropping out, leaving France, and heading over there to fight with ISIS? And so this author was comparing two French psychologists. Um, I'm not sure I can properly pronounce their names. Who Elabek and Zemmour. I, that's close. And so they were trying to explain why all the French youth were dropping out and, and uh, heading off to fight for ISIS. I won't read you this. But I do want to read you about the last six sentences. It is hard to read tales of everyday Western youth dropping everything to join ISIS and not conclude that there is something to the idea that postmodern enemy, now I got to explain what that word means A N O M I E. It means it, it describes a social state of moral breakdown. All right? You got that word? 
Let me start it again. It is hard to read tales of everyday Western youth dropping everything to join ISIS and not conclude that there is something to the idea that postmodern anomie and libertinism leave a secret part of us craving an all-embracing, confident, life-shaping creed. In the end, Mr. Zamour and Mr. Huelbeck have in common, what they have in common is not a critique of Islam or immigration, which is really secondary to their concerns. Instead, what they have in common is that they point to real wounds in the French soul, wounds that too often go unmentioned, wounds for which they freely admit they have no cure. Well, I do. I do have a cure. Actually, I don't have a cure. I have the cure. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is the final answer to the cry of the heart. All is vanity. Apart from Jesus Christ at the center of any of our pursuits, we'll end up just where the book of Ecclesiastes started. But a growing, vital, living relationship with Jesus Christ is the very thing for which you were designed. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the explanation as to how meaning and purpose are found. Our Father, would you, um, would you convince us of, um, of the very truth of what Solomon has outlined? Would you convince us that life apart from Jesus Christ is meaningless? It's vanity. Work is vanity. Pleasure is vanity. Success is vanity. And yet all of those things take on a brand new meaning when someone is properly and rightly related to Jesus Christ. Father, the world absolutely does not have any explanation as to why, as to why people are dropping out and doing things that are inexplicable. The answer is to be found in Christ and him crucified. Would you use this church as well as numerous other ones to announce and proclaim the beauties and the excellencies of Christ? 
We pray, of course, in his name.